Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. On this episode, well, in happy fermentations, our yeast do the things we need them to do. They merrily munch the sugars and the carbs we give them and turn them into ethanol, CO2, and a ton of flavors that, well, we just enjoy. But we know that yeast, like our favorite pets and children, don't always behave. Yeah, I have one of those right over here. Sometimes things go wrong. Have what causes these off flavors? How do we solve for it? And, well, sometimes is an off flavor really an off flavor? Well, you know, there's, a, there's another option. Which is? You can just learn to love them. Okay. Yes, you can. <laughs> maybe not a bad maybe not a good idea. Yeah. And I've known some homebrewers who have taken that exact tack. So sit back. We're about to go off. But first, here's a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at brewerspublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon, a.k.a. the National Homebrewers Conference, a.k.a. the best beer event in the world. This year, HomebrewCon heads to Portland, Oregon, a.k.a. Beervana. HomebrewCon features brewing seminars, a trade show with the latest homebrew technology, and fun nighttime events that celebrate the awesome community of homebrewers. HomebrewCon is June 28th through June 30th. Visit homebrewcon.org to register. Well, hey, thank you for sticking around and listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember that if you uh, if you interact with them, tell them exactly where you found them here on the Brew Files. Now, yeast, well, yeast and fermentation, we usually know how to make that work. We usually know how to get it to to do the magic that we need it to do. But sometimes things do go wrong, and well, we develop off flavors. 
So we figure on today's episode, we'll dive into four you know, off flavors that are fairly common and seem to be mostly related to things either fermentation or pre-fermentation. So what we're going to do is actually we're going to break down, you know, you know, one, what the off flavor is. We'll talk a little bit about off flavors because as Denny alluded to, off flavors are not always an off flavor. Sometimes they're just like a weed. They're just a flavor somewhere <laughs> where you don't want them to be. That's right. Uh, so what we're going to do is walk through each of these uh, off flavors. We're going to give you the organoelectric impact. We're going to talk about the primary causes and any other causes that are there, give you any sort of classic examples if they do exist, and, well, how you actually solve for this and make sure that it doesn't actually happen again, or maybe sometimes fix it in post. So, Denny, I think we should start with uh, everybody's favorite, uh, acetaldehyde. Sure. So, uh, acetaldehyde, and my apologies to all the chemists out there if I butchered that, uh, chemically, uh, is C2H4O. Why do you care about that? I don't know, but if you do, there it is. The usual thing that, uh, people talk about with acetaldehyde is a, a green apple kind of flavor to the beer or a solventy, uh, kind of taste or sensation. Now, in terms of the green apple, Remember, it's green apple. Sometimes people get kind of like an apple ester, and they assume that that's uh, acetaldehyde. Might be, but not necessarily. One thing that I learned recently when I was in New Zealand uh, listening to Randy Mosher talk is that acetaldehyde doesn't always present itself as green apple, like the uh, common homebrew wisdom would have you think. Randy gave examples of manufacturers, like, say, of candy, who use acetaldehyde to create flavors like strawberry and raspberry in uh, their products also, and pointed out that how you perceive the acetaldehyde, of course, depends partially on the way you perceive things, but also on the level of it, and different levels will give you different effects. You know, if you've got something wrong with your beer and it's not necessarily green apple, keep that in mind. Well, and I think sometimes it's also going to be on the context, right? So I think that's part of the reason why it might come off as strawberry in some other contexts as well. Definitely so, you know, but just just keep in mind that if you perceive apple, it might or might not be acetaldehyde. If you perceive green apple, there's a pretty good chance that it is. The uh, primary cause of it uh, comes from incomplete fermentation. It's a natural step in the process of fermentation, and uh, unlike the jokes that we have about the yeast peeing ethanol and belching CO2, there are actually several intermediate steps, including a transformation of pyruvite into acetaldehyde and CO2. The acetaldehyde is then converted into alcohol, and that's the normal of fermentation. So by the time the, the beer hits your palate, there's a, a well-behaved, healthy yeast colony that will have converted almost all of the acetaldehyde into ethanol and, and dropped the levels of it below the level of perception, which is around five parts per million for lagers and maybe 10 for your typical ales. There are other enzymatic pathways that may take care of some of that uh, acetaldehyde also. Uh, one of the other causes is, is a boil issue. It's fairly rare, but it can happen. Uh, just like DMS, the boil can create acetaldehyde. The complication in that, though, lies when it binds with the wort protein. Yeah, in particular, what that means is that because it's bound up with the wort protein, if it does actually survive into your fermentation, it's actually a heck of a lot harder to get rid of. Another thing that can cause acetaldehyde is uh, contamination. So remember, sanitation is your friend. I think everybody's had that drilled into them uh, 
a number of times. I don't know with the number of beers I've tasted recently with some contamination issues. I'm, I'm not certain they have. <laughs> oh man. Now you've got me worried. So uh, when people talk about examples of acetaldehyde in beer, the classic example that seems to always come up is Budweiser. I kind of perceive it in there, but not as much as uh, everybody would have you believe. And I'm willing to believe it's confirmation bias that makes me perceive it. I've, I actually reached out to Mitch Steele on this one because uh, Mitch is a you know the current brewmaster of New Realm in Atlanta. He's the former brewmaster of Stone. And uh, also originally started his career, you know, working for Anheuser-Busch. And so he's, he's often been peeved at people using Budweiser at the, as the example. And he said that back when he was brewing Budweiser at uh, AB, that the acetaldehyde levels uh, typically ran below five parts per million, which remember we talked about was the flavor threshold. And that Hayden would normally get more acetaldehyde character from something like Coors Light. And what he believes that people are, you know, really perceiving is a combination of ethyl acetate and other fermentation esters, uh, you know, kind of combining to form that green apple character that everybody's like, oh, that must be acetaldehyde. Yeah, right. And to me, this goes back to the confirmation bias idea where people tell you that, oh, yeah, Budweiser has a lot of acetaldehyde in it. So you begin tasting it. And uh, measurably, it's just not at a, at a level where you should be able to perceive it. And uh, like like Mitch said, if you think you're perceiving it, you're probably perceiving something else. All right. Well, now, hey, how do you solve for this? Of course, the best way to solve it is to make sure that it doesn't happen to you, right? Uh, because once it does, it's a lot tougher to get rid of. Uh, some of the solutions are making sure that you pitch uh, plenty of healthy yeast, and that's going to be a real theme in a lot of these. Pitch a- an appropriate amount of healthy yeast. Uh, make sure you have enough aeration for good sterile production, which will help that yeast multiply and stay healthy. Uh, during fermentation, uh, going along with that yeast health issue, the other key is to give your yeast enough time to complete the fermentation. This is a part of the uh, conventional homebrew wisdom that does seem to be true. If you remove the beer from the yeast too soon, the yeast won't have a chance to uh, break down all that acetaldehyde into other compounds and uh, and get it out of your beer. Uh, most home brewers won't have this problem, though, because we tend to leave the beer on the yeast for uh, plenty of time. You know, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but uh, my schedule is such that uh, I never get beer transferred when I think that I'm going to. So... Acetaldehyde just has not been a problem for me. The primary problem comes from yeast dropping out of solution faster than they complete the the fermentation. And one of the things that will cause that is exhausting the resources in the beer. Another thing that can cause that is too much calcium in your beer. One of the primary purposes of calcium is yeast flocculation. So if you get too high a calcium level in your beer, you you can actually cause the yeast to flocculate before they're done doing their job. In other words, don't go killing your ferment by cold crashing your beer before the fermentation is done. And, uh, you know, if you have temperature-controlled fermentation, you can do that by raising the temperature at the end of fermentation to make sure that it's done. Now, if you get it, what can you do about it? Well, a little CO2 can go a long way to correct your flaws You can bubble CO2 through the beer in a keg and uh, hopefully uh, blow some of that acetaldehyde out. The other thing you can try is uh, croisoning, which works for uh, diacetyl also, which we'll talk about in a while. Croisoning is the method of adding actively fermenting wort to your beer, right? So uh, you just make up like about a quart or so of wort, 
get it, the fermentation going real well. You have yeast at work, hopefully consuming that acid aldehyde and getting it out of your beer so you can enjoy it. Yeah, I have a story about doing that same technique for uh, for diastole production, but we'll get there in a moment. I, I think the real key is, again, like most of the other things that we're going to talk about today is don't get it in the first place. Good, healthy yeast and appropriate fermentation time. But again, as you guys know, since we just talked about expressway brewing, you also don't need to leave the beer in contact with yeast for you know weeks on a time. Right. So now I think it's time for us to tackle our second off flavor. This is arguably the one I think I see the most often, uh, particularly with new brewers or with brewers who just haven't done a lot of thinking about, you know, sort of their water source. And that is uh, chlorophenols. Remember, water is, you know, arguably for most of us, somewhere between 90 to 95% of our beer. Maybe if, maybe if you're Fred, your, your beer is more like, you know, 80% water. Well, that's, that's when you start dry malting. Yeah, exactly. Chlorophenols. They are a very, very distinctive aroma flavor. We're extraordinarily sensitive to them. So what do they smell like from an organoleptic point of view? They really, they smell plastic. They smell medicinal. They Maybe a little, maybe a little like Listerine, maybe a little clove oil mixed in there. And sometimes just usually a really kind of rotten and off-putting type of flavor and aroma. Got any additional descriptors there, Denny? Yeah, sometimes sometimes they can be perceived as kind of like a weird additional sweetness in the beer. I've had uh, people tell me that that's what they thought was wrong with their beer was it was too sweet and you taste it and it's going, no, I'm sorry, those are chlorophenols. So a lot of it has to do with just uh, the, the way you perceive it and the level of chlorophenol in the beer. I've definitely had a number of homebrews with sort of a low-level part of it where yeah, it gets into that sort of uh, something ineffable, you know, t- a type of thing where you're just like, I, I, I know I'm tasting something here, but I can't quite put my finger on it. But the second that you get chlorophenols for real, you'll know it because yes, yeah, there's no, there's no hope for you. I had my first experience with them. Oh, about the my first year in brewing, and I don't have to worry about them here because I'm on a well. There's no chlorine in the water. But I'd gone camping with some friends, and one guy showed up with a keg of beer that he brewed. And I had never experienced uh, chlorophenols before, but let me tell you, with the first sip of this beer, it's like, oh, this is what it is. Uh, you'll know it when you get it. And so, as Denny alluded to, the primary cause of chlorophenols in your in your beer is actually your water, uh, particularly chlorine or chloramine that you have in your water. So, uh, remember, folks, you know, thanks to Dr. Snow back in London figuring out that cholera was coming from bad wells. Uh, we now have municipal water treatment. We have people thinking about water safety. And so the best way to keep your water safe is to add disinfectants to it. And the most popular two here in the U.S. at least are chlorine and chloramine with chloramine, which is a more sort of solution stable uh, version of chlorine, uh, really kind of winning out. And the whole idea is that they're there to keep bacterial loads down in our water supply so that the water that gets to your tap is safe. By the way, if you haven't really thought about it, that is a modern miracle. It is part of the reason. It is part of the reason that we can have cities as large as we do, and we don't see giant cholera outbreaks unless there was like a natural disaster. So chlorine and chloramine are good things, except for when you're trying to make beer, because what ends up happening is if you have enough chlorine or chloramine in the in the system at the time, and remember that a lot of municipal water systems will do periodic flushes of the system, where you know you may notice that sometimes your your water smells really chlorinated, 
And that's because they're flushing extra chemicals through the system in order to kind of you know, take care of any potential problems. Depending upon the amount of chlorine and chloramine that you get in your water, when it hits the malt, it does a funny reaction. And there's an interaction between various compounds in the malt and actually some of the yeast too that will cause these sort of very, very stable, very, very aromatic uh, phenol compounds. And remember when we talk phenols, phenols are just chemical compounds that, that we perceive as spicy or, you know, potentially in this medicinal characteristic. And that's to separate it from, uh, you know, the usual sort of uh, organoleptic impact of esters, which is to be, you know, fruity. Again, primary cause, chlorine in your water, chloramine in your water. Other causes that are out there uh, can actually come up from infection, particularly if it gets more rotten, if it gets more baby diapery, uh, that's more likely to be from an infection. It's also easily confused with some of the sort of those iodiney smoky phenols, like think what you get from peat malt or from rock beer malt, you know, when you're going to make it a smoked beer. But usually those are kind of at a lower level and pleasant, unless somebody's decided to put a whole half their mash as a smoked malt. The chlorophenol is much more uh, disturbing and off-putting. This is a very popular one, one I see all the time in homebrewing circles when I do Troubleshooter's Corner. Water hoses actually, you know, your nice vinyl garden hose can actually add a very similar aromatic compound uh, that's more vinyl smelling, more plasticky smelling. Yeah, big one here, folks. If you're using a garden hose type setup for your water supply, don't use the green garden hose. Use a RV hose, you know, which are typically white or a potable water hose. Uh, they cost a little bit more, but man, they do not make your water taste funny and they won't, that flavor will carry forward into your beer. Again, water is your primary cause, sometimes infection, and sometimes there are a couple things that you can confuse it for. Classic example of chlorophenol character intentionally in a beer. I can't think of one. Can you, Denny? No, I, I can't think of any, you know, commercial beers that I've ever found chlorophenols in. Yeah. I mean, now I've had some commercial beers that have chlorophenols in them, but that wasn't a characteristic that they decided was, you know, deterministic of their beer style. <laughs> that was yeah, accidental. Right. No commercial examples that I can think of with this, primarily just because it's such an offensive flavor. Uh, now, the solutions, if you have chlorophenols in your beer, there isn't a solution. There's, there is no getting, getting rid of it. Your best bet is to either try and blend it if you're at a low level with another beer, but I kind of think that's chasing bad beer with something good. So I wouldn't bother with that. Yeah, really, man. You'll just, you'll just take the good beer and bring it down. Other option. Uh, and I've done this before when I had this happen. Uh, you know what uh, chlorophenolic beer is really good for? Soaking beans. <laughs> it actually, yeah. it actually works okay if you're going to make beans for chili or baked beans or something like that. You can use your chlorophenolic beer, but I'm not certain I've ever made enough beans to justify keeping five gallons of chlorophenolic beer on hand. Right. That's a lot of beans. <laughs> well, you know, we talk about uh, how we're kind of uh, obsessing over a plate of beans over here. Well, that, that's a whole bucket of them. Well, that's, yeah, man, that's, uh, that's uh, Blazing Saddles level. Uh, <laughs> great. Now I'm going to think of that movie the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> now, in order to avoid it, because remember with these off flavors, for the most part, you know, really prevention is the better course of action here. Just like, you know, it's better to catch your cancer early, better to stop that cold from uh, getting hold. It's better to make sure that you don't get chlorophenols in your beard to begin with. And again, we start with water. Make sure you're doing something to your water to strip out the chlorine and chloramine. Now, if you're, if you're in a place where they're using chlorine, you know, which would typically be smaller cities because the uh, water systems aren't as big. Chlorine, uh, getting rid of it is as simple as putting it into a pot overnight and letting it sit. Uncovered. Uncovered. Yeah, uncovered. Or bring it to a boil, briefly, because uh, chlorine will off-gas. Now, the reason 
that cities have switched to chloramine is because of how easily chlorine comes out of water. So chloramine is far more stable. You can't boil it out of the pot. Uh, so you have really two choices there, and this will also work for uh, regular chlorinated water. Use some sort of activated carbon uh, filtering system or RO or something like that. But remember that you have to make sure that you're running your system slow enough. I mean, I've seen some homebrewers out there, they hook a, a carbon filter into their water supply and they just let it rip and get their water as fast as they can because they're impatient and they want to brew. You're not giving the carbon enough time to actually do its thing. Also, make sure that your cartridges are in date and uh, fresh because uh, faded cartridges, old cartridges or cartridges that have had too much uh, water run through them won't work. Uh, RO systems will do the same thing, but again, you got to give them time. And the thing that I do, because I'm sort of notoriously lazy, is I actually use Campton, potassium metabisulfite. You know, you normally sold as a wine sanitizer. Potassium metabisulfite will react with the chloramine and will actually drop it out of your water. Uh, so it'll actually uh, compound together and uh, fall out. So I usually just bring my water into my HLT. I add a pinch of potassium metabisulfite. You can use you know, like one of the Campton tablets, I think one tablet is good for treating 20 gallons of water. Correct. Yeah, just crush that up or use the powder, stir it into your water, and I let it sit for 10 minutes. Then go forward and use it as you would water. And I've actually tested that you can buy chloramine test strips. They're a little different than the chlorine test strips, but you can go buy chloramine test strips. And I've been able to confirm that, yeah, doing that really does strip out the chloramines super quick. And it's easy. You, you don't even need to, to let it sit for that 10 minutes, although it's certainly not going to hurt, but it pretty much happens instantaneously. I know. I let it sit for 10 minutes because I'm usually running around doing other stuff. Well, that's that's what I figured, sure. And that's why it, you know, it certainly doesn't hurt. It gives you time to do other stuff. One thing that I'd like to address here is the number of times I've heard uh, homebrewers say, why should I worry about getting chlorine out of my water when I start? Isn't this all going to be boiled anyway, so it'll just boil out? And it's like... No, because by that time, the damage has been done. It's interacted with the malt. And once you get those chlorophenols formed, boiling is not going to get rid of them. So just break down, take a few seconds, and deal with it first. Like Drew said, Campton is a great way to do it because whether you have chlorine or chloramine, you put it in there, it gets rid of it almost instantly, and it's really inexpensive, too. Yeah, and I find it's far more reliable than trying to use a filter and make sure I've gotten everything correct. Uh, of course, the other thing that you can do is, you know, go buy RO or filtered water. Just make sure that you're buying it from a place that you trust. Uh, but I find that to be tedious. And, you know, we have modern delivery systems that mean I don't have to lug water everywhere. Yeah, in unless your water is so loaded with minerals that you're pretty much uh, obligated to use RO or distilled water. Uh, and if all you need to do is get rid of the chlorine or chloramine, then Campton is a great, easy, inexpensive way to do it. Yeah, and make sure that you do get potassium metabisulfite, not sodium metabisulfite. Uh, you're only going to be using a pinch of this anyway, but uh, I usually like to avoid adding sodium to any of my mashing waters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, a little bit of sodium is not a big deal. Up to 25 parts per million can actually be maybe a good thing. But why mess with it if you don't have to? You, I mean, you know, if you're putting it in your water to uh, dechlorinate it, you may not know exactly how much sodium you're getting out of it anyway. So Chlorophenol, to me, is the is the one that should never be anywhere. And it's also one of the more common uh, newbie homebrew flaws that I've ever seen out there. But now I think it's time that we dive into one that, well, sometimes it's an off flavor, sometimes it's not, but it's always there in some shape or form. So Denny, you want to hit it? Yeah. Uh, Drew's talking about diacetyl, which uh, 
For you chemistry geeks out there, C4H6O2. Now, notice that that has the same building blocks that we were talking about for uh, acetaldehyde, the, the carbon, the hydrogen, the oxygen, but there are just two more molecules of each one of those. I don't know exactly what that means, but I find that kind of fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> you know, man, we all we all get fascinated by different stuff. You get fascinated by YouTube. I get fascinated by uh, chemical structures. The way you're going to know if you have a diacetyl problem is that you'll have a, a flavor in your beer that kind of tastes like, uh, oh, fake movie popcorn butter or butterscotch. Or for me, I detect it more often by the mouthfeel. There's a, there's a fullness in the mouth. There's maybe like a, a slick kind of oily feeling on the roof of my mouth. Now, this one, unlike a lot of other off flavors, as Drew mentioned, there are beers that this is appropriate in, uh, some British styles, some uh, Bohemian Pilsners, uh, a little diacetyl is uh, probably a, a good thing as long as it's a little. There are There is a debate about whether it should be in there or not, but I, I think it should, at least a little bit. I, I remember when I first got into homebrewing and HBD was still an ongoing concern. I, th I think the Bohemian Lager diastole thing was one of the biggest arguments ever. Right? Yeah, man. I remember that from 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, people think that the hazy versus non-hazy fight is is mean. You guys should have seen the diastole and Pilsner <laughs> war. Uh, that, yeah. that, was, that was true obsessive nerdery at, at, at its finest. Even, even still, I think the key takeaway here is even if you're in a style where some diastole is – is acceptable. Don't go make a butter bomb and say that that's what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, really, man. It's like uh, the people who have an infected beer and say, well, it's Belgian. We, we are not in Harry Potter, folks. Butter beer is not a thing. Really, really. Okay, so you get diacetyl as a byproduct of fermentation. At the same time, the yeast is turning pyruvate into acetaldehyde. It also will produce various amino acids with other intermediate chemicals. One of those is acetolactate, which if not converted by the yeast cells, will become a diacetyl via oxidation, right? So that the acetolactate oxidizes into diacetyl. Fortunately, the yeast have a mechanism that converts the diacetyl into a different compound that's more associated with fruity and creamy flavors, but the amount needed to impact your beer is many times higher than the diacetyl. So when it converts these into the fruity and creamy flavors, they're going to be less noticeable than the diacetyl that started with. And it will require a lot more in order to make it noticeable. Right, exactly. Uh, the amount of diacetyl produced and the amount of it reduced by the yeast is dependent on the strain. Some of them do both of those more than others. Higher, higher fermentation temperatures can produce more diacetyl. Do you know why that is? Yeah, it's because of the, uh, the activity of that uh, secondary chain. Uh, basically, you know, if the... Yeah, you know, as that chain is more active, more diastole will get, or more of the precursor compounds will get, uh, you know, moved out of the cell because the cell is not able to take them up at the time. And then, you know, that's out in the pool. And then you're depending upon the yeast strain to actually, you know, do the uptake and clean up at that point. So you're producing more base chemical at the higher fermentation temperature. Right. So the higher fermentation temperatures don't necessarily produce more diastole, they produce more diastole precursor that the yeast needs to clean up. And if the yeast doesn't do that, then you'll get more diacetyl. A lot of times the diacetyl is going to be uh, most notable in a lot of British ale strains, which uh, makes for a fuller body in, in your mouth. 
and especially because they're generally lighter in alcohol. The uh, Yeast 2308 Munich Lager strain is uh, notorious for being able to produce diacetyl unless you do everything right. Uh, many of these strains perform with less diacetyl under open fermentation conditions. Uh, I don't know if that's just because it blows off or maybe the the yeast is healthier. Do you have any idea about that? No, I don't. <laughs> well, that's good. So, and I think it's really important. Uh, Denny mentioned the Munich Lager strain. That is a very notorious one. Uh, other ones out there that also tend to produce a lot of diacetyl are things like uh, Ringwood. Uh, Ringwood mm. is probably the most notorious butter bomb producer. Oh yeah. And if you're if you really don't know what you're doing with it, you're almost guaranteed to have a butter laden beer. So be careful about your yeast strains. I tend to favor the the British strains that produce a little bit less of that buttery uh, thing. Right. And I know that uh, one thing that I've always heard about the Ringwood yeast is that uh, if you give it plenty of oxygen during fermentation, that uh, it will pretty much not be a problem uh, to have diacetyl in it. So, I don't know. My my one experience with Ringwood was so bad that I've never gone back to it and experimented. So, Some other ways you can end up with diacetyl in your beer are a pediococcus uh, damnosis infection, and believe me, you'll get a lot more than diacetyl out of it. I know, but come on, it's it's also one of my favorite words to say. Pediococcus damnosis. <laughs> oh, you're so easily amused. Other ways you can get it are from a, a lactobacillus uh, infection, which is, you know, a lesser extent. When you end up with diacetyl from a contamination, it tends to taste more rancid, kind of like rancid butter, huh? One of the major causes of post-fermentation problems with diacetyl comes from dirty tap lines, and uh, I've experienced that more times than I care to think about. Yeah, I, I just, I get sad when I think about the amount of good beer ruined by bad tap lines. Yeah, really, really. So, like, any any classic examples of uh, diacetyl? At least here in the U.S., uh, the primary one I always think of is some of the beers from Shipyard. Uh, shipyard founded in Maine by Alan Pugsley, who is a British trained brewer who is inordinately fond of that Ringwood strain that we just talked about. <laughs> and sometimes with those shipyard beers, they get they get extraordinarily buttery. I remember, I think it was their ESB years ago. No, I think you're thinking a Red Hook ESB. That was a notorious diacetyl bomb. Yeah, that one was too. But the shipyard had an ESB that was also very. Oh, did they? Yeah, it was very buttery. But, you know, you, you can just find it, and boy, is it not good <laughs> um, <laughs> when you get that example. Sorry, Alan. But So why don't we uh, dive into some solutions again? As we always say, the, the, the better course of action is to prevent it from happening, but sometimes this will happen on you anyway. Easiest one is, again, better yeast health. We're going to keep banging that drum all day. So better yeast health. Choose a different strain or try open fermentation. So, again, if you're going to go for something like your Munichs or your Ringwoods, uh, be prepared allow your ferment to complete because again, just like with the acetaldehyde, you know, this cleanup is part of the normal fermentation cycle, you know, while the yeast are still active. So make sure you allow them to actually have enough yeast health and energy to keep going until completion. Right. And, and I'll just, I'll just mention here real quickly in passing, many people like to leave their beer in the fermenter for a long time saying that the, the yeast will clean up after fermentation. That doesn't happen. The yeast need food in order to do any kind of cleanup. So just make sure that you time your fermentation so that uh, the yeast are still active and healthy during the cleanup phase. There you go. Make sure they get plenty of glycogen, rest, and ATP. That's right. Now, let's talk a little bit about the the diastole rest because a lot of people talk about this. And this is normally a technique that I think of as associated with lager fermentation. 
But the idea of this is, you know, particularly with that Munich logger strain that we were talking about earlier, it's very notorious for this. But the technique's simple. You know, you have your beer fermenting down at lager temperatures, so, you know, say around 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And then as it gets down to the end of fermentation, you ramp it up into the mid-60s, let it sit there for two to three days to do the cleanup work before crashing down into your lagering phase. And that is a thing that can be done. Now, the problem that I have with it is I'm starting to see a lot of brewers out there, at least on the homebrew scale, who've decided that, oh, well, this temperature boost step is a, is a really great idea for you know doing all this diastole cleanup and everything else. And they've started applying it to virtually everything, including some, you know, their ales or other lager strains that are clean fermenters. You don't need to do a diastole rest with all these things, you know, and particularly even with ales, because for the most part, ales are going to be up at a temperature where they're already in a perfect position to do your diastole rest. Well, and, and remember that the diacetyl reduction is not strictly a function of temperature. It's a function of yeast activity. So, you know, you raise the temperature in a lager to make the yeast more active to consume the diacetyl. For an ale, you're not really going to be able to make the yeast much more active by raising the temperature. So you just give it more time if you're worried about diacetyl. I do a temperature rise at the end of every ale fermentation, but I don't do it because I'm worried about diacetyl. I do it because I want to make absolutely sure that the fermentation is done. Yeah. And then the other, uh, other things that you can do, you can scrub with CO2. We talked about with acetaldehyde. I've actually had luck with that before. Just bubble CO2 up slowly through your beer. And I mean, it's never going to be perfect. You know, you're not going to get rid of all of it, but you can at least take it from being butter obnoxious to butter adjacent. (laughs) And the nuclear one, just like Denny mentioned with acetaldehyde, is repitching with new yeast or pitching with uh, uh, croissant beer, uh, actively fermenting beer. I had a braggot that I did years ago and used Tupelo honey. Tupelo honey is one of my favorite honeys. It's also a really expensive honey, so it's a terrible crime to waste it. And I made a, a Weizen braggot. I made a wheat beer that I used the Tupelo honey in because I wanted the Tupelo honey to provide the the funny yeast characteristics that we normally associate with Bavarian Hefeweizen. Yeah, but I didn't want to use a Bavarian Hefe yeast. So I got into the keg. I was super happy. I went to go pour it for people, and it tasted like butter. You know, not even good Irish butter, just bad butter. I brought it home very disappointed, and I had some uh, fresh yeast that was sitting around that I was getting ready to use for something else, just some USO5 or 1056 or 001. And I pitched some of that into the keg, let the keg warm up, and you know, I kept it cracked open on the top like I do when uh, just covering up the PRV, and let that ferment for about another week. Came back, cold crashed everything, transferred the braggot off the yeast that had now settled out, and voila. No more diastole in that in that braggot. So I saved what had been made with probably about $50 worth of honey and made a perfectly drinkable and wonderful beverage out of it. So a little fresh yeast can work miracles. Yeah, and sometimes it can be a little difficult if you just put in yeast to get it going. So that's why croisoning works well, because you know that your yeast is going before it goes in there. But it certainly doesn't hurt to just dump in some yeast first. Uh, do it the easy way. It's time for our last off-flavor that we're going to cover in this week's episode, and that is everybody's favorite, dimethyl sulfide, a.k.a. cooked corn. <laughs> I love cooked corn, well, but yeah, not in my beer. Not in your beer. So uh, dimethyl sulfide, it's the primary uh, flavor impacts are you know, really the way most people describe it is cooked vegetables. And, you know, sometimes it's cooked, cooked cream corn, you know, which is sort of the more pleasant presentation form of it. 
And other times people perceive it as really sort of a sulfurous cabbage type of thing. No good. And I've heard other people say, you know, boiled carrots and that sort of stuff. But I mean, really the idea is yield can of, you know, some sort of veg that's been cooked to death. The way that it actually comes about into your beer is there is a precursor chemical found in most um, malt called SMM. And SMM is usually found in paler malts because they haven't been pyrolyzed off, right? So for the most part, this can be driven off by heat. Modern malt manufacturers have gotten really good about reducing the amount of SMM. During the boil, SMM goes through a transformation that uh, actually goes through uh, to two different compounds, uh, DMS and DMSO. DMS is the more cooked corny one. DMSO is the one that smells more cabbagey. The recommended brewing practice has always been to have a vigorous boil with good evacuation pathways, you know, so that the steam can get out of there because the SMM and DMS will come out via steam. And, you know, so the idea is boil with your lid off, or if you're in a full stack kettle, you know, make sure that you have an evacuated chamber with some sort of fan that's pulling all the condensate out that's rich with DMS and, you know, getting it out of the kettle and getting it away from the beer. You know, another thing that came out of the good old HBD days was uh, a study that uh, turns out that if you have your kettle 15% open, that is sufficient to uh, leave enough space for the DMS precursors to to dissipate. So if you have trouble maintaining a boil, if your burner's a little underpowered or your kettle's really large, you can partially cover it, but definitely don't cover it all the way. Good tip. And the other thing is that from some uh, studies, you know, like the guys over at are doing, it seems that modern malts have really come a long way in terms of preventing uh, DMS formation, you know, which makes sense. The monsters these days are doing a huge amount of the work for us because uh, in the commercial world, the less work that uh, the breweries have to do, the less expensive it is for them. So the monsters have undertaken a lot of this themselves. That's why we're getting such highly modified malts, for instance. And so now the other trick here is that DMS is still actually being produced in the boil kettle while your wort is cooling. This is part of the reason why it's important to get a a good, you know, fast chill on things, you know, one of the reasons. And because of this, this means that we are always going to have to depend upon having an active fermentation to volatize, you know, some of the additional compounds that are in there. So again, good yeast health coming to your rescue. Well, you know what? And to your to your point of how the maltsters are taking care of a lot of this for us, the prevalence of no-chill brewing is really uh, an indication of how little uh, DMS can be an issue a lot of times these days. Now, other causes that are out there, uh, secondary type causes, we've got uh, DMSO, which we talked about, which is basically you know, DMS with an oxygen added to it. So one extra little friend, hey, say hello to my little friend. <laughs> so some yeast strains can actually strip that oxygen off the DMSO and turn it back into DMS which is pleasant. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And all of this sort of conversion is all, you know, dependent upon a lot of factors, including your gravity, your pH, and, you know, sort of the temperatures that, you, that you're at. Now, the tertiary cause is infection, you know, contamination. Prepare to nuke your beer from orbit, switch your sanitizers, and, you know, be annoyed while you actually have to go, you know, change things up. Now, the classic example, the one everybody always talks about is Rolling Rock. Good old Rolling Rock, formerly Latrobe, Pennsylvania, now of uh, Newark, New Jersey. At least when when I was first coming up, you could crack open a, a Rolling Rock and smell the cooked corn yep. from across the room. So a classic example there, they made that into a flavor characteristic for the beer. I think if I remember correctly, when they first moved from Latrobe to Newark, uh, the Newark brewery wasn't producing the same cooked corn character, and people were upset. <laughs> Sickies. Yep. 
Now, solutions, again, preventative maintenance is always best. So, you know, you want to practice a little extra uh, care when you're dealing with pale, pale malts like Pilsner's. Uh, you want to boil vigorously and relatively openly for, you know, at least 30 minutes, although the traditional pack practice has always been 60 to 90. Uh, although at our scale and with the amount of interface that we have between open air and kettle surface, 30 minutes is probably sufficient for our purposes. Yeah, and, and definitely the 90-minute the boil that has traditionally been recommended with Pilsner malt to get rid of DMS is, is just not necessary these days. Yeah, and I would say if you're using like a more heritage-style malt, you might want to you know, you know, stick to old-school guidelines, but modern malts are, are pretty rock-solid. Other thing? Chill rapidly to fermentation temperature to you know prevent more of that uh, formation during the the post boil period. Use lots of healthy viable yeast. Do you guys know Sathim to <laughs> to produce the active fermentation? Get a lot of CO two, which will also help uh, strip things. And then lastly, again, you'll want to remove the beer from the yeast in a timely fashion, which means neither too early nor too fast. Any other thoughts on DMS there, Denny? Uh, I hate it. Yeah, it's. I mean, again, sometimes sometimes at low levels, if if you get the corny flavor. It's actually not a bad thing in, in some ways, but for the most part, I don't approve. Like you said, if you get if you get a touch of it, it can be interesting. But boy, let me tell you, you'll know when you have too much. There you go. There's your first four off flavors, and what will probably be an ongoing series of things that we're going to talk about because, well, there's lots of ways to talk about how beer can just go horribly, horribly pear shaped. <laughs> it's it's easy to make, and you got to just pay attention to a few things. But uh, if you don't, it'll bite you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this brief, very brief exploration of what our fermentation is trying to tell us when it rebels. It's not just an awkward teenage phase, folks. Did we miss one of your favorite off flavors? Did you have a brew that went horribly, horribly wrong? And what did you do to fix it? What did you do to, to deal with it? Did you just cry in your beer? Or did you do what I do and make chili beans? <laughs> or just dump it out. Yeah. Remember, our primary tip for almost all of these off flavors good healthy viable yeast will save you from so many brewer idiot mistakes it's just like feeding your kid a good balanced diet so that they do well in school denny any additional thoughts you know i as always i think that the main thing to do to prevent problems is be aware that they can exist and where they come from and pay attention is that is is that like kind of one of those duh moments it's a, it's a something moment, and <laughs> we love all of our something moments. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum known out there to mankind. Don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more, which for the last time this month is... It is Habitat for Humanity, a wonderful, wonderful organization that helps people build their own homes and get into them to fight homelessness. So throw us a few bucks via Patreon and we will pass it along. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Brew Files.